Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago Sazanov's Deception Today is the 26th of July 2014 and on this day in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. In the early hours of Sunday the 26th of July, Russia's period preparatory to war was underway in European Russia. Although the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Sazanov had previously claimed that Russia wouldn't mobilise until Austria attacked Serbia, Russia was in fact undertaking a definite step towards the commencement of hostilities. The major architect behind these moves was the Russian foreign minister. A man once upheld as too timid, too unwilling to act, whose track record of inaction during the Balkan Wars had lulled Austro-Hungarian statesmen into a false sense of security. Sergei Sazanov, by summer 1914, was a man of a different form altogether than the one Vienna thought it was dealing with. When the French president had visited in the days before, he had heard rumours about Sazanov's weaknesses, and he had been told by some belligerent Montenegrin princesses about the foreign minister's apparent spinelessness and inability to take a strong stand. President Poincaré, at the time, had hoped that Sazanov's shortcomings could be offset by the strength and convictions of the Tsar. Yet it was Sazanov who operated on a level never before seen in his character. Now that he had gained approval for this course of action, and now that the Tsar had given his blessing for the period preparatory to war, mobilisation in Russia's key western districts could begin, and it was up to Sazanov and other key Russian officials to maintain the facade of Russian inaction until the moment was right. The German ambassador to Russia, Friedrich Portelet, had been hearing troubling rumours about Russian preparations though and such rumours refused to go away. In fact, it had been the day before, when one Russian official had explained to his German friend, present at the scheduled parade, that he had to leave to prepare for the mobilisation, 
when this German friend had recalled the brief conversation to German agents in its embassy, eyebrows began to rise. Was Russia mobilizing? And if it was, why was it doing so in secret? These were the questions that the German ambassador hoped to address, when he happened to meet Sazanov as the latter waited at the train station in St. Petersburg to get a ride back to his workplace in town. Sazanov invited the German along for the short trip, and Portale acquiesced. The last time they had met, on Friday the 24th, the atmosphere had been fraught with tension and tempers had boiled over. The high point being Portale's accusations against Sazanov that the latter hated Austria. This time, though, the mood seemed far more relaxed. Sazanov was all smiles as he sat with Portale for the short journey. He was, Portale later reported home, far more calm and conciliatory. And Sazanov had insisted with great warmth that Russia was as far as possible from wanting war. Portelet made haste to tell the Russian that Germany felt the same way, and wished to emphasise that Austria didn't want war also. If the Austrians were really seeking, as Portelet says he described it, a pretext to come to blows with Serbia, we would already be hearing now of military action. Since the ultimatum had expired and no word reached Berlin of immediate Austrian action, Portelet could justifiably claim that the situation was not past saving. He urged Sazanov to begin talks with Count Zapari, the Habsburg ambassador to Russia, as soon as possible, and Sazanov said that he would. Sazanov opened the meeting between himself and the Hungarian count by apologising for losing his temper on the previous Friday, when the two had discussed the ultimatum and tempers had again ran high. Zapari wanted to emphasise in plain terms that his country was far from wishing to push forward into Balkan territory and to begin a march to Salonika or even to Constantinople. Vienna's aim, Zapari explained, was self-preservation and self-defence though the Hungarian did understand that complications might arise from the delivery of such an ultimatum, he attempted to persuade Sazanov that interference was not necessary. If a conflict between the great powers arose, he told Sazanov, the consequences would be fearful, and then the religious, moral, and social order of the world would be at stake. In glaring colours I set forth a notion of what might follow if a European war broke out. Zapari, in his report home to Berchtold, the Austro-Hungarian foreign minister, said that Sazanov agreed with me thoroughly and seemed uncommonly pleased with the report of my explanations. Sazanov then took the floor, and Zapari's report continues to record what he said. Sazanov conceded that, in Russia there were old grievances against Austria, and admitted that he had them too. An interesting admission, considering his claim to Portelay on the previous Friday, that he felt merely contempt for Austria. Sazanov claimed that such feelings belonged to the past, though, and shocked Zapari by claiming that he had no sympathy at all for the Balkan Slavs, who had become a heavy burden for Russia. Russia was, Sazanov explained, willing to consider the Austrian case vis-à-vis the ultimatum and Serbian guilt but Zapri recorded that Sazanov considered the path we were pursuing to attain it not the safest way. Sazanov continued with his own analysis of the Austrian ultimatum, which focused on points 5 and 6 that had proven so controversial before. Sazanov said that in the event that Belgrade accepted the terms, 
King Peter would run the risk of being killed at once. A reference to the volatile nature of Serb politics and the rousing nationalist anger that would ensue should the Serb government be perceived of giving in to the Habsburg enemy. Sazonov claimed that such a murder would make the whole situation worse, because it would set up an anarchistic witch's cauldron on Austria's doorstep. Sazonov attempted to modify the ultimatum and tried to change the phraseology of certain points, but Zapri recorded that he couldn't continue since he wasn't authorised to modify the note. He said he would get back to Vienna on Sazonov's intentions, while Zapri says that Sazonov, again in the warmest words, expressed his pleasure at the explanations which I have given him and which have materially calmed him. He would also, he said, make a report of our conversation to Tsar Nicholas, whom he would see the day after tomorrow. Was Sazonov, the most ardent architect of Russia's mobilization and its period preparatory to war, now having second thoughts? Zapari certainly thought so. In his report back to Berchtold that afternoon, Zapari noted that, Russian policy has travelled a long distance in two days, from the first rude rejection of our procedure, and from the proposition for a judicial investigation of our dossier, making a European question out of the whole affair, and from that point on again to a recognition of the legitimacy of our claims, and to a request for mediators. It was indeed a transformation. Sazonov continued to suggest he had changed his mind when he wired a request to the Russian ambassador in Vienna, and asked that the latter organise a way for Zapari to be given the authority to modify the ultimatum, so that their next chat could perhaps produce more concrete results. That both the German and Austrian ambassadors were aware of the air of goodwill now emanating out of Sazonov's office, they were also noting with alarm the report coming in that suggested Russian mobilisation was underway, and that it was preparing itself for war. Can confirm with certainty that mobilisation has been ordered in Kiev and Odessa, Warsaw and Moscow possibly, the other districts probably not yet, was the report from the German military attaché that Portelay received, and the German ambassador sent this to Berlin at 3pm. Zapari, meanwhile, wired off a note to Berchtold that We must not overlook the fact that, along with this backing water policy on the part of the diplomats, there is setting in a lively activity on the part of the militarists. Portelay and Zapari were, of course, unaware that it had been the now warm and friendly Sazonov who had orchestrated the mobilisation across European Russia. But had they known, they would have been even more concerned for the genuine Russian position. Reports coming in were sketchy, but there was no doubt in Berlin by Sunday afternoon that Russia had some kind of mobilisation plan underway. In response to this escalation of events, the German ambassador to Britain, Lichnowsky, lodged a formal complaint with Sir Edward Grey, the foreign secretary. However, Grey was too busy fly-fishing to take notice of work. He had gone for a break in his estate the night before, no doubt eager to have a rest from the Irish question. Grey's undersecretary, Sir Arthur Nicholson, thus accepted Lichnowsky's complaint, and in his report back to Grey, noted that Prince Lichnowsky called this afternoon with an urgent telegram from his government to say that they had received information that Russia was calling in classes of reserves, which meant mobilisation. Lichnowsky even tried to appease Russian sentiments in his appeal to Nicholson by stating that he 
would not mind a partial mobilization, say at Odessa or Kiev, but could not view indifferently a mobilization on the German frontier. Geographical concerns were top of Lichnowsky's agenda, and he noted that If this mobilization took place on the German frontier, Germany would be compelled to mobilize, and France would naturally follow suit. This would of course bring about a war, so he requested that Britain do everything in its power to scale down the tensions and urge the Russian government not to mobilize. Nicholson listened to Lichnowsky's qualms in full, but politely dismissed them once the German ambassador had finished. I told Prince Lichnowsky, he later told Gray, that we had no information as to a general mobilization or indeed of any mobilization immediately. Nicholson then claimed, as though he was stating a fact, that the order mobilising 1.1 million men has not been issued. In fact, Nicholson was in a way correct. No official communique announcing the mobilisation had been directed, either to local or national government. However, since this was the period preparatory to war, such orders were not issued, and the whole point was to carry on in secrecy. After denying German facts, Nicholson told Lichnowsky that Britain would be unable to order or request Russia cease its activities either way, since doing so would be difficult and delicate for us. When Austria was Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Contemplating such a measure, we should not be listened to. Nicholson insisted also that it wasn't mobilization, but actual conflict that was of his concern, and that the issue was to prevent, if possible, active military operations. Nicholson then told Lichnowsky of the planned four-power conference due to mediate between the three interested parties. 
ignoring the facts both that France and Russia remained opposed to it, and Germany had already expressed its own wishes for a different form of mediation. In short, Arthur Nicholson had done an unfortunate job filling in for Gray. He had managed to offend German sensibilities on four areas. First, there was the blanket refusal to listen to or believe German protests about mobilisation, which Gray could have gathered to hold some water had he bothered to talk to his Russian ambassador. Second, Nicholson claimed that London couldn't restrain St. Petersburg, even though Britain was meant to be a neutral party in the event. Third, he came to the conclusion that, even if Russia was mobilising, only actual military measures were of a concern to Britain in any case, since only they threatened the peace. This is despite just being told of the chain reaction that would ensue if Berlin discovered Russia was mobilising against her and felt the need to reciprocate. Fourth, and finally, by introducing Arthur Nicholson's new four-power proposal to mediate between the three powers of Russia, Serbia and Austria equally, Britain would put Germany in an awkward position, whereby she would face the pressure of the Entente and the undisguised antagonism of Italy during the negotiations. Far from coming away with a positive message, Lichnowsky must have wondered at the extent of British neutrality. Indeed, Nicholson had done a shocking job representing his country to Berlin. But Lichnowsky seemed initially to agree with the proposals, for fear that rejection would cause a breach between England and Germany, which the raging Anglophile Lichnowsky viewed with horror. But Lichnowsky's Anglophile tendencies were not shared wholly in Berlin, and many were incredulous there at the news that London seemed unaware of what Russia was doing. Reports from St. Petersburg about Portelay's short meeting with Sazonov arrived in pieces over the course of the day, along with the German ambassador's conversations with his Austrian colleague in Russia that had brought him up to speed. Speaking of speed, such an issue remained paramount for the Germans. They believed that the only way to act against Serbia was to do so with haste, that Vienna should strike against Belgrade so rapidly and defeat it so quickly that countermeasures would be irrelevant and pointless. And yet, such a view was gradually being eroded by news of Russian activities. Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs in Germany, Gottlieb von Jagow, had sent a circular letter on the 18th of July reflecting German policy when dealing with Russia. The more boldness Austria displays, the more strongly we support her, the more likely Russia is to keep quiet. Yagov had met with the Austrian ambassador on Saturday the 25th of July in Berlin, and picked his brains by inquiring whether Serbian refusal would be followed by an immediate declaration of war, and further warned that any delay in the commencement of military operations would bring the danger of intervention by outside powers. Yagov told the Austrian ambassador to present the world with a fait accompli. Yagov wanted Austria to move before Russia had the chance to respond and to end the issue while St. Petersburg debated action. This would be an open and shut case, which would, because of its speed, prevent Russian participation. But Yagov should have known by now that he was not dealing with statesmen who valued speed above all else. On Sunday afternoon, today 100 years ago, Berchtold summoned the Chief of Staff Konrad von Hotzendorf, along with the German ambassador to Vienna, Count Scherzky. Scherzky urged speed and fell in line with the policy of his government, and Berchtold also agreed. The two then turned to the bellicose Konrad, 
whose repeated calls for a smashing of Serbia seem to suggest a desire to immediately destroy Serbia as soon as possible. But Conrad shocked them both. When Berchtold asked Conrad, When do you want the declaration of war? Conrad replied that war would be needed only at the stage when operations could begin at once, the 12th of August. It seemed as though Austria was doing it again. After delaying for an unbearable length of time, then managing to leak the details of their plans, then having their ultimatum rejected, Vienna's official policy now seemed to be yet another period of waiting and seeing, as the country took two weeks to mobilise. In many ways, though, this actually made sense. Why would Austria attack Serbia before it was militarily ready? It could not have mobilised earlier, thanks to the harvest leave issue and the machinations of Stefan Tisa, the Hungarian minister-president. Berchtold in vain lamented that Austria couldn't wait two weeks, as the diplomatic situation will not hold that long. Russia, by two weeks' time, would be more than prepared for whatever response she needed to take, especially if the substantial rumours that she had already been mobilising were true. The German plan of a swift attack would thus be foiled again, as it had been in the days after the assassination. There would be no fait accompli. But because Berchtold didn't want to disappoint the Germans again, he claimed that Austria would not declare war yet, but that she might do so soon if Serbia became hostile. Had Berchtold known of Sazanov's promising discussion with his ambassador that took place simultaneously in St. Petersburg while he had met with Conrad and the German ambassador, then he may have had even more reason not to press ahead with a swift answer to the ultimatum. However, word of Zapri's conversation with Sazanov would not be received until that night, and Sazanov's report of the encounter, sent to his own ambassador in Vienna, would similarly not reach Berchtold until Monday morning. This Russian ambassador in Vienna, meanwhile, had been reporting on Austria-Hungary's own mobilisation against Serbia. These preparations were largely similar to Russia's period preparatory to war, despite the fact that Conrad had made clear that the actual war was only going to come on the 12th of August. Whether Berchtold wanted to listen to the reports Zapri sent back to Vienna or not, and whether he would have actually wanted to modify the terms of the ultimatum to please and defuse Russia, events were gradually being overtaken by the preparations made by both sides, which suggested that more sinister intentions were coming to the fore. The French liaison officer at Russian military headquarters had reported back to the War Ministry in Paris that Yesterday the War Minister confirmed to me the mobilisation of the Army Corps of the military districts of Kiev, Odessa, Kazan and Moscow. The endeavour is to avoid any measure likely to be regarded as directed against Germany. But nevertheless, the military districts of Warsaw, Vilna and St. Petersburg are secretly making preparations. The cities and governments of St. Petersburg and Moscow are declared to be under martial law. The Minister of War has reiterated to us his determination to leave to Germany the eventual initiative of an attack on Russia. German and Austrian intelligence, of course, could not be sure of Russian measures to the same degree as the French, but the evidence was nonetheless substantial enough for Ambassador Portelet to feel the need to confront Sazanov about it in his office. Despite their early morning conversation that had seemed to dispel some of the German doubts, Portelet wanted to hear it from the horse's mouth, that Russian plans were not as total as believed. He arrived in Sazanov's office at 9pm, and his account of the conversation the two had was revealing insofar as it demonstrates what Sazanov wanted to hide as much as what he felt willing to tell. 
Portelay complained to Sazanov about. The news widely reported among the circles of foreign military attaches, according to which several Russian army corps have been sent towards the western border in accordance with the mobilization directive. Sazanov responded, Portelay said, by saying that he could guarantee that no mobilization order had been given, and that none could be expected until Austria-Hungary undertake hostile measures against Russia. Again, Sazanov was making use of a technicality, though it is unlikely that he would have had any qualms about lying, since he was a politician and statesman after all, just like Sir Arthur Nicholson had stated earlier, an order for mobilization had not yet taken place. In other words, the kind of public, traditional method of announcing across the state that the process of mobilization was henceforth underway did not take place. What happened instead was a quiet directive signed by the Tsar that ensured mobilization in all but name would take place behind the curtain put up by the period preparatory to war. The period preparatory to war, if one recalls, contained as one of its instructions the note to lull the enemy to sleep through the use of diplomatic trickery. With the period preparatory to war underway, it is not hard to see the common features in the description given of the directive and the policies now adopted by Sazanov. Sazanov concluded with the claim that certain military measures were underway, perhaps to ease the Germans' mind that, of course, some operations were being conducted, but nothing like the kind of mobilization that Russia seemed to be suspected of. But Sazanov wasn't the only one who was willing to bend the truth. When the war minister called in Major Egeling, the German military attaché, to try and ease his nerves, the conversation was just as sneaky. At the same time as the German ambassador talked to Sazanov, the war minister offered Egeling his word of honour that no mobilisation order had yet been issued. While certain preparations were underway, the war minister admitted, he insisted that not a horse was being requisitioned nor a reservist called up. Both of these points being total lies, since the period preparatory to war required both of these items. When Major Egeling reported home to the German Chief of Staff von Malka, he noted the atmosphere. I got the impression of great nervousness and anxiety. I consider the wish for peace genuine, military statements so far correct, that complete mobilization has probably not been ordered, but preparatory measures are very far-reaching. Egling concluded that the Russians are evidently striving to gain time for new negotiations and for continuing their armaments. The problem was, time was the last thing Germany had. As more time lapsed, it looked more and more unlikely that Austria would be able to settle its accounts with Serbia alone. Additionally, with Russia perhaps mobilizing itself against Austria, Berlin's own war plans would soon be in jeopardy if it did not move fast. Reflecting the mood at the time, but against the wishes of the German Chancellor, who did not wish to give the impression that Germany was preparing itself for war, Germany's Kaiser, its military chief of staff, and its naval secretary were all on their way back to Berlin from extended summer vacations. With the presence of so many military minds soon to be in the capital, Chancellor Bethmann Hallweg likely reckoned that their return would mark a point from which the tensions of Europe would only increase. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.